Hey, everybody. Welcome. I'm Tom, one of the pastors here, and I slink out of shadows. Uh, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 8. And for those of you familiar with this passage in 26 through 40, just want to give a caveat so you're not distracted the whole time, like wondering, when's he going to get to it? We will not be talking in depth about castration or teleportation today. So I'm sorry. Uh, and, and unfortunately, and, I mean, I speak from experience, so you get so distracted by the end of this passage where all of a sudden the Holy Spirit whisks Philip away and you're like, what, wait, what happened? And uh, that you miss all of the riches that come before it. And I was talking to Matt Huff, who's one of our elders, and he's like, yeah, when I first got saved, I was like totally tripped out by it. Like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? Do we get to do this? Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe. Uh, Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do. Um, Anyway, let's get into Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 is kind of this like pinnacle moment. It's this beautiful bookend section that kind of caps off what's been happening in uh, chapters 1 through 8 and and moves the story forward for what's going to happen from 8 through 12. And, and it's, it's bookended right against Saul's conversion. So it's this really interesting dichotomy between the eunuch and Philip and then Saul, Paul, on the road to Damascus. We're going to get into Damascus next week, but this week we get to explore um, themes of identity and belonging. And uh, I, I have a lot of favorite authors and some that I will admit to and others I'll pretend like are only my second, third, or fourth favorite author. Um, but one that I just I can't get away from is David Foster Wallace because he's incredible and also because he's so astute at observing my experience as a modern person in the West. And uh, in, in one of his brilliant little interviews with the BBC, he said... The problem with uh, people in the West, you know, modern people in the West, is that we're alone and we're lonely and we're afraid of being alone. And, and that the very things that can deliver us from this, especially like ooey-gooey sentimentality, um, are the things we hate, we're most skeptical of, we, we're cynical towards. And, uh, and I think that's, that's true, that's our experience, is that we desire on a deep fundamental level, we're actually designed for relationship, and at our very core, we want to belong, but we live in a continual, continuously fracturing environment where belonging becomes more and more difficult, and, uh, and, and it's tied to identity, which we see increasingly defined by internal feelings about who I am, uh, what my essence is, and therefore the external actions that we can all see are an expression of that internal feeling. Uh, but you can't know anything about me unless I reveal it. Because what you see here, which is you know, somebody in his late 30s dressed in black, has no bearing on who I really am at my very core. Although there is a little bit of a gothy punk rock thing going on. Um, but self-disclosure, uh, I don't know if you've experienced this. I, I imagine you have. I'm certain you've seen it. 
but there, there's an element of, of isolation that happens in our culture in, in a really interesting honor-shame kind of way where somebody does something that the elite, the tastemakers, the people that tell us what is acceptable and what is not deem inappropriate. They get publicly shamed, and then they go into hiding for a few years only to hopefully, like best-case scenario, resurrect and um, go through this like repentance and transformation. And um, some of that's like legitimate. Um, sexual predators probably should be called out publicly. I, I'm for that. Other things are a little silly, like somebody just not being good at singing the national anthem. Uh, to, be, to be forced to publicly apologize and retract like the Monday after it happens, man, rough. Uh, but if you don't do it quickly, then, you know, social media piles on it and the pressure and, you know, it's bad news for everybody. And, uh, and what we see is, is a rejection of identity that isolates, that's, that's based off of these external factors and in some cases things that people can't control, um, like just bad taste in note choice, uh, if you want to take the, the Fergie reference. Um, man, I've been trying to avoid the Black Eyed Peas since I was in high school, and this is like the first time I've talked about them publicly. So I apologize. Anyway, uh, there's this, this honor-shame thing that happens that isolates us from one another, that attacks our ability to belong and separates us, and, and its very core is is identity. And this is a story about identity and belonging. And so we're going to go through and, and look at five characters and kind of explore what that is all about. So let's start in Acts 8.26. And Luke records, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. I want to skip around because this is our first character. If you look a little bit further in 29, the Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then at the very end, in 39, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. The mission of the church... And our salvation is intimately tied with the act of the Spirit. If God had not moved towards me, if he had not moved towards you, we would still be where, where we were when, we, when he found us in reality, uh, where he found me. The Spirit of God is on the move, and he's pursuing unexpected people in unexpected places, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch is probably the last person that the Jewish church would have thought, yeah, we should include them in our gang. It's a great idea. Um, it's just unexpected. And, and remember, this is one through eight is capping off this section and propelling the story forward in eight through 12. that tells the story of how a primarily Jewish and Jerusalem-based church became this global 
multi-ethnic community with decentralized leadership and locations. And, and this is incredible. But we'll miss it if we keep on thinking about 39 and you know, the spirit beaming up Philip to go to Azotus or whatever. This is the spirit acting like uh, Romans 10, where Paul asks the question, like, how is anybody going to call on the name of the Lord if they don't hear about him? And how's anybody going to hear about him if there aren't any preachers? And how's anybody going to preach if they're not sent? And this right here, is the Lord sending Philip after an unexpected person in an unexpected place. Uh, He is fulfilling the great commission in Matthew 28 that we are to, as we go, make disciples um, or go and make disciples in in his case. Uh, Not all of us have been gifted with the gift of evangelism. Not all of us have that, like, Woo, where you can walk up to a stranger, engage them in conversation, instantly win them over, share Jesus, have them convert, and then invite them to church, and now they're your best friend. Um, Not everybody is like that. Uh, But all of us are called to witness. All of us. Regardless of our gifting, all of us are called to witness. And that's a little bit of, of what we're doing right now. We are gathered in the city, together witnessing to the reality of Jesus, declaring his lordship over our lives and over our community together. Uh, This is an expression of witness. But as you go out, you're going to come into contact with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family, with your your strange neighbors uh, even. And there is a way to witness to them that doesn't require the gift of evangelism, but requires you opening your mouth. Um, and it requires the Holy Spirit to be in action. So, so the Spirit is on the move, and he is calling Philip to be faithful to that call. And Philip just says, yeah, okay. Says literally, so he started out. And this lacks all of the importance and drama that I, I would hope for because it's a profound statement. So he started out that Philip is obedient is, to me, just blows my mind. Because remember in chapter 6, Acts 6, Philip is one of the seven, the seven proto-deacons. He's one of the guys that the Hellenistic Jews chose because he was full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, love and mercy, able to serve, and, and they chose him to, to be one of their proto-deacons. We don't know if they actually had the, the office, probably not. Um, but they, they chose him to serve. And he was one of seven. And his buddy Stephen was also one of the seven. And you'll remember in six and seven what happened to Stephen. Stephen witnesses to the reality of Jesus, and it gets him killed. I mean, he, he's a really good preacher, I would say. He's, he's probably got the gift of evangelism. But he's witnessing. He's witnessing to the reality of a crucified and risen Messiah who loves and is inviting the Jewish leadership, the very people 
who put him to death. He's inviting them to be a part of his kingdom people. And they gnash their teeth and they stone him to death. And Philip is, is there. Philip knows what's happening with his friend. For, for that Philip to hear from a messenger of the Lord, hey, like, go to this really deserted place in the middle of nowhere and like, do the thing that, that got your buddy killed. It's close to Jerusalem. Uh, that's a step of faith. Number two, this is a deserted place in the middle of nowhere. It's just a road, and sure, surely there's some traffic, but nowhere near as much as Samaria, where Philip in 7 and 8 is engaged in an incredibly effective ministry. Remember reading that? He's like converting Samaritans, or yeah, Samaritans, not Samarians. Samaritans left and right, and the spirit is on the move, and it's a beautiful thing, and God's kingdom is kind of spreading to this strange region, and, and Philip's being called out of a place of effective ministry into a place of really unexpected, maybe ministry? I don't know, but so he goes. He started out. Um, I wonder if our experience allows us to be as obedient. If we look to our experience and think, well, I was obedient to Jesus once and like tried to witness to my neighbor and it really didn't go well and I felt foolish and ashamed ultimately because they called me stupid and so I'm just not going to do that anymore and I'm going to like, you know, do the like good works thing and hope somebody notices. Um, I certainly have, have been tempted in that way. Uh, I've talked a lot to, to people who are tempted in the same way. The, the phrase that preach the gospel always and when necessary use words is like, to me, that's worse than the black-eyed peas. It's, it's like uh, I've heard people just make fun of it left and right, and my favorite little prod is, well, why don't you feed the poor and when necessary use food? It's like, yeah, that, that makes about as much sense because the gospel always requires words. It always requires us to be obedient and to be articulate as well as we can be and to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Because, man, it doesn't matter how smart we are, how well we've laid out the argument. If, if God's Spirit is not on the move, then ultimately we're just talking about thoughts and ideas. I mean... How many people have read the book of Romans thought, that's a pretty good argument, but nah, no. God, God needs his spirit to be on the move and his people to be obedient to his call. Let's read a little bit further. So Philip starts out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet and says, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I sit or how can I? He said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up with or come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. And I just, I wish that it was always that easy. I wish that the Holy Spirit or 
the angel of the Lord would be like, hey, just run over to that car. Well, a car would be really awkward, maybe a skateboard or somebody on a bicycle, and just like get near it. And then they're reading from like the Gospel of John or something. It'd be so convenient. Oh, do you understand what you're reading? No, can somebody explain it to me? Like, oh, yeah, I can. Yeah, that would be epic. Um, but there's something even deeper going on here because this is not just an Ethiopian, not just a Gentile, this is a eunuch. And for us, that's just a little bit weird. Uh, even saying castration is, is a little awkward and sounds kind of like farmy. Uh, but, but in the day, there would have been primarily two ways maybe let's say two and a half ways that this, this Ethiopian would have been become essentially the CFO to the queen of Ethiopia. Um, one, which we know by the context is not true, but one, you either uh, attain this position by being born into it. Nep- nepotism at its best, you know. Royal family... Johnny's good with numbers, and so let's give him an opportunity to count up the, like, the shekels and stuff. And Johnny gets better at the shekel thing, and soon enough, like, because he's related to the prince or the queen or whatever, um, he's installed as this high official. Uh, but because it's, it's an Ethiopian eunuch, and not just the, the treasury guy, just just an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, we know that's not how he got the position. You would never castrate uh, the royal line and prevent future heirs. That would that'd, like, be the worst thing you could do. Um, there are two ways this particular person came into his position of power and influence. And the first is that he was a captured slave, um, possibly even of a royal line somewhere else, Uh, but not necessarily. And they found out he was really good with numbers, and they promoted him. But the only way to get into that position was through castration. You cut off the future hope of heirs, you cut off the future hope of family, and you take away their dignity, their honor, and you shame that person because they're a captive. That's one way, and if you can feel the weight of that, The second way, and I think this is probably likely, uh, although it's a toss-up and it's, you, know, you, just, you choose the one that makes sense to you. Um, the second way, and I, I, I do think this is the one, is that you castrate yourself. You're born from low standing, and you decide that you don't like your lot in life. You don't want to be, you know... Um, stable hand for the rest of your life, whatever it is. Choose your least favorite job. And, and you want to rise to a position of power and authority and influence and luxury. Then you go into the service and you essentially make yourself a slave. And the only way to trust somebody in the, the court who's not a, a family member is to castrate them. You make them a eunuch. So what's probable is this guy grew up in a standing he didn't care for, 
and decided I can better myself if I sacrifice my family and my future for, for my job. And I know Portland hasn't reached this level yet. You know, uh, rents are still at least attainable for some of us. Uh, I think what the, the median household income is $60,000. This is for two people. Where a, and that'll buy you a $200,000 house in Portland. Um, I mean, you can see the problem. <laughs> Uh, you can't afford to buy. Uh, so do we give up our, our family? Do we sacrifice our family and our future and our relationships in order to get ahead, to get what we want? Um, this doesn't just have to happen because of housing. Do you, do you want power and influence and authority? Do you want clout? Do you want people to think highly of you? And in order to do that, here's the road. Like, I work 70 hours a week. I work 80 hours a week. And th- that's kind of what's going on here with this guy. Um, either super ambitious or captured um, and made shameful. And, and he goes to Jerusalem, the center of worship for Yahweh, Israeli's God. Uh, because that's who he believes in. And uh, it says in, in 27, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. Given what we know, he, he owns a book of uh, the prophet Isaiah. So that is like, I mean, this guy is super wealthy. To own your own copy of Isaiah would have been a big deal. Um, he probably knows something of Jewish culture and customs, given that he knows he can't just have some sort of culturally meaningful worship interaction in his hometown, which would have been like present-day Sudan. He knows he needs to travel about 1,500 miles one way to go have this worship experience. And so it's probable that he knows when he gets there, the law is going to prevent him from actually participating. In Deuteronomy 23.1, the law says that eunuchs are not allowed to worship in the assembly. And Leviticus 22.3 says that a foreigner can't offer sacrifices. So he's relegated. He's, he's isolated. He's on the outside. He, he arrives in Jerusalem, and he's told, you don't belong here. And, and best case scenario, he was allowed to hang out in the court of the Gentiles. Uh, which was far away from anything meaningful or significant when it comes to worship. Here's somebody that desperately wants to be a part of the people of God. It's, I mean, not only is he traveling 1,500 miles, but it's not just him. Any official of this standing would have traveled with an incredible entourage. It would have cost him personally, because the Queen of Ethiopia is not going to fund this trip. This guy is a a man desperate to worship Yahweh, and he gets to Jerusalem and he's told, no, you don't belong here, you're not a part of us, and you can't do it. What, what would that feel like? I mean, that's an attack on personal identity. So, so Philip has this opportunity. 
In verse 32, we read, this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. And the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So I get it. I, you know, you can read a little bit of that Isaiah passage that uh, Luke has preserved for us. And there's humiliation, there's injustice, there's a complete lack of future descendants. And if Philip just started here, he could tell the Jesus story pretty well. If, if this was it. He could say, oh yeah, like the guy that knows about humiliation, Jesus. The guy that knows about injustice is Jesus. The guy who knows what it's like to not have a future hope and family, it's Jesus. And then, you know, he died for you and, and he's alive and, and he wants to invite you into his family. That, that would be pretty profound. Uh, but, but I think that that, doesn't account for the kind of response that we see here. Because it's like immediately the eunuch is like, there's water, let's jump off this chariot and get in there because I want a part of that. To me, and maybe it's just because I'm skeptical, uh, but it seems like that's pretty easy. That's pretty unrealistic. That that doesn't happen to me. Well, it happened once, but that was pretty pretty wild. and certainly not with oxen or eunuchs, just so I'm clear. So what's going on? Uh, and, and I think the key to understanding the eunuch's response, his enthusiasm, is in the passage of, of Isaiah, coupled with uh, this, this little line, then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip is preaching the gospel, and he's beginning with Isaiah. And... So later on today, when you've had lunch and you're like relaxing or doing whatever it is you do on Sunday, I would encourage you to carve out 30 minutes, maybe, maybe 45, depending on how fast you read, and go from Isaiah 40 all the way to the end of the book in 66. It's, it's a profound scaffolding for the gospel. It's like so incredibly beautiful. Uh, and... I was going to end up preaching Isaiah if I went into all of it, but you know we're going to run out of time if I do that. So I'm going to summarize, but you're going to read Isaiah 40 through 66 later today. Sweet. Um, okay, so in 40, uh, uh, Israel is in exile, right? And Yahweh God is announcing the good news of the presence of the kingdom. Great news. The kingdom of God is at hand. Mercy and justice and love and peace. And Israel goes, what? We're in exile. We don't believe you. We don't think you're very good. We don't even want to serve you anymore. And maybe it'd be better for us if we served these other gods. And so for the next seven chapters, there's this argument back and forth where God's like, you should have seen my hand in this. And Israel's like, what hand? We don't know who you are. And, and it comes to a, a head in verse 48, where God is finally rejected by Israel. And he says, okay, I'm going to do a new thing. It's going to be totally new. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this faithful servant and I'm going to anoint him 
and he's going to be my witness and my messenger. And, and he's going to be full of the Spirit. And he's going to be full of my attributes, mercy and justice and love. And he will fulfill the mission that Israel just rejected. He'll be a Spirit-empowered light to the, the nations and a blessing. And through him, I'll do what I told Abraham I would do. I'm going to bring all nations to myself and bless them. It's totally radical. And at that point, it's like, high moment, sweet. Who's the witness? Who's the, the faithful witness? And uh, you read a little bit further, and you realize, oh, this isn't going to go very well. Because in chapters 50, 52, and 53, God also says that witness, who's going to be amazing and usher in this like, glorious new kingdom, uh, is going to die. He's going to be put to death and rejected by his people, just like Yahweh was rejected this faithful witness will be rejected and they're going to kill him. And that's where the eunuch is reading in 53. So let's, let's turn there really quick. Uh, so another thing you'll probably notice as you're reading is that in, in Acts, Luke is quoting Isaiah 53 and the, the translation is a little bit different. Um, that's because the eunuch is probably reading in Greek, and so his copy is the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so, you know, just like NIV is going to sound a little different than ESV, and it's good to have both so you can kind of get back to the original languages. Um, in fact, it's good to have three translations if you're going into deeper Bible study. Um, but th- that'll account for the differences. So we're going to start in seven and go on through the end. This is what the Ethiopian eunuch is reading. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. Do you see that? For the transgression of my people he was punished. For... Further on down and in uh, 56, God says that this death of the servant, this faithful servant's death, will be for some people. It'll accomplish something. Uh, He is dying for the sin of his people. Picking up in verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. In verse 10, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. So he's going to die for the sins of his people, and it's going to be an offering for sin, but he's going to prolong his days and prosper. And and he says in in 11, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He's going to die for his people. It's going to be atoning sacrifice. And through it, he's going to justify many and he's going to live again. This is, I mean, even if if Philip just stopped there, there's, there's the scaffold for the gospel. That's beautiful, right? And this comes right after... 
the section of 40 where God's announcing the kingdom and the servant is rejected, but he's going to live again. And through it, he's going to justify many. And then what's the proper response? To be a part of this offer is its humility, its repentance, and its identification. To identify with this servant, with this faithful witness, is the way into this kingdom that God is offering. I think there's another part that it's highly probable that Philip took the eunuch, and that's in chapter 56 of Isaiah. And I think this is probably where the lump in the throat starts, uh, where the eunuch wants so desperately to be a part of this, and, and, and then the experience, you know, the gap between desire and experience, expectation, like kind of creates doubt, it creates a tension, and it needs to be resolved. And I think Philip anticipates this and goes through. In chapter 56, verse 3, he says, uh, and this is Isaiah, saying, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Ethiopian, foreigner, excluded, not allowed. And in Isaiah, the Lord is saying, man, if you're identified with me, no one can exclude you. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. Identity and belonging. God's saying, if you identify with me, you belong to my people, and you'll never say, I can't be fruitful. Who, who you are and what you do will be defined by God and not by your station, not by your circumstances. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations." That's good news. That's a kingdom I want to be a part of. And that, I think, is what the eunuch is responding to. This, this Jesus that Philip is going to tell him about is the faithful witness, is the faithful servant, who knows what it's like to suffer injustice, who knows what it's like to be humiliated, and who knows what it's like to have all future hope cut off. And yet, through identifying with him and his death and his resurrection, we enter into a kingdom full of justice and mercy and joy with an inheritance that's far beyond our comprehension. I mean, to, to inherit the temple, the very house of God, like that, that's wild. 
I mean, some of the promises in the New Testament are just like too good to be true. We'll sit with him on his throne in Revelation. We will judge angels in 1 Corinthians. We will be his people and he will be our God. It's so intimate, so loving. And, and the eunuch response. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. Okay, so you are, I mean, you're the CFO. You're the super high government official. You've taken this crazy pilgrimage 1,500 miles away to Jerusalem. You've got your entourage around you. And I mean, hopefully some of his friends are there and maybe his family. The only person that we see respond is the eunuch. So silence isn't always the best indication of what happened. Um, But this is all we have to go off of. And so at least for this moment, can you imagine all of these people seeing this man humble himself in repentance and identify with a crucified and resurrected Messiah? Like they must have been stunned. They, they must have had some sort of question. You know, not everybody's hanging out in this ox-drawn chariot. Uh, what is happening? Why is that guy taking a position of humility and publicly identifying? I mean, that's what baptism is. It's a public identification with Jesus. Uh, I was talking to Jack Bartlett, who sings a mean bass, and um, we were joking, like, yeah, it's supposed to be public. You don't get to, like, hang out in your bathtub at home and be like, well, God God knows what I'm thinking and feeling right now, and so I'm just going to, you know. I mean, like, how useless, right? Um, but I think we we treat a lot of the good news like that, a lot of the kingdom like that. I think a lot of it is very private when it should be personal and public. It's hidden when it should be proclaimed. If we can't, if we can't publicly identify with Jesus, how is he going to publicly identify with us? Uh, in, in 37, which most of... Any KJV people here? KJV? There we go, some KJV. Most of you probably don't have verse 37. Maybe you've got a note. Uh, I just wanted to, to call attention to it because we talked about Romans 10 a little bit earlier when we were talking about the Spirit initiating witness. And in, in 37, here's what, what happens. We have more ancient manuscripts from like the earliest times, more copies than any other ancient text. It's incredible how much reliability we can put on, on the Bible. We know that it was written early because we have early texts. And we know what it says because we have a lot of them that all say the same thing. A few of them, uh, a few, very few, have 37 uh, in, in the text. And this 
crept into the Textus Receptus, which is Bible nerdy stuff, so don't worry about it. Um, but it crept into the Textus Receptus. And what probably happened is we've got all these manuscripts. Somebody's like, wait, there's a gap between him saying, like, yeah, I want to get baptized and him getting baptized. And well, what happened? And as my Bible probably has a ton of notes in the margin and yours probably does too, um, early scribes were probably trying to make sense. Oh, well, you know, Philip said, well, do you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord? And the scribe, uh, um, and then the, the eunuch said, yeah. And, you know, he's confessing with his mouth. And I think what probably happened is that was initially in the margins, kind of creeped in as a way of illuminating something uh, it doesn't change the meaning at all. And in fact, it highlights the dependence of Acts and Romans 10 because this whole thing is, is dependent on like the Spirit sending and the people responding and witnessing. And, and so I think that that's just a, a textual note to remember when you come across something that is at the bottom of your Bible margin, hey, most of our texts don't have this. Um, that's not a question of reliability or trustworthiness. It's a matter of, of witness. What do the majority of our texts witness to as the earliest um, original source? So the, the eunuch is baptized, and when they come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch didn't see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So again, has total success. Wouldn't now be a great time to like explain some of the like spiritual disciplines of following Jesus, like maybe some next steps, uh, like help this disciple grow up a little bit, be faithful to like Jesus when he says in Matthew 28, teach him to do everything I've commanded. And instead, the Spirit, in his wisdom, says, I would like you to go over here now. Um, there's an ambiguity in the text, and so it could be read literally, like teleportation, the Holy Spirit carried him over, and that would be really cool. Uh, and certainly, if God can raise somebody from the dead, then he can transport somebody through time and space. Um, or it could just be the Spirit told Philip, hey, go over here immediately, and he did. And since the, the eunuch kept on going south, like, you just didn't see him again. That would make sense too. Um, I don't think there's a lot of fruit to be gained in trying to figure out how to teleport. I do think there's a ton to be gained by seeing the depth of the emotion behind this story and seeing... The, the struggle for obedience, actually the lack of struggle, like there's none recorded, um, but, but the, the obedience and faith of Philip, the, the experience of the eunuch who is basically told because of who you are, you don't belong. Uh, the way that Isaiah structures the gospel for us and the promise of, of that, to anyone who would respond. Uh, and, and finally, I, I think that, that Philip probably preached the good news uh, that we find in Acts 2. Acts 2, 22 through 45 uh, is just, uh, maybe 46, is just a great passage of Scripture to memorize. It's got everything 
that God has done for us through Jesus. It has everything that we need for knowing how to properly respond, and it outlines everything we get. Uh, so after you've finished Isaiah 40 through 66, read Acts 2, 220, uh, 22 through 46. I just love assigning homework. It's great. Um, so here's what the unit got. You got a picture of God's commitment to somebody even like him who stood well outside the norms of what a covenant community should look like. And he's responding to this free offer of grace from this incredible Savior who has pursued him. And through identifying with him, allowed the eunuch to respond with identification himself. See, the, the key, the twist, is that this is all about substitution. Jesus Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came like us, uh, to be with us, to be for us, and to give himself to us and for us. By identifying with us, he allows us to identify with him. And, and it's free. I mean, it's as simple as humility and repentance and identity. I, I wish that I could say, look, here's water. What can prevent you from being baptized? Because I assume some of you have never decided to follow Jesus. Some of you maybe even who have been in church for a long time. And if that's you, like, respond with the gospel. And, and talk to me afterwards. Uh, and, and let's get you signed up for baptism uh, at the end of this month on Good Friday, or next month. Uh, but, but I wish I could say, here's water so we could do it now. Um, because there's something about public witness that's really powerful. It's affirming personally. It's encouraging corporately. And it's beautiful. Uh, but here's what I know, is that we do have real water with us, the living water, Jesus Christ. He's, he's present with us now. He says, I am the water of life. If you're thirsty, you can drink from me. You'll never be thirsty again. I will completely change your identity. You will be identified with me and by me, what I've done, who I am. You will become a son or a daughter of the king of the universe, and you will be a part of my kingdom people. Here's water. Jesus is water. And if you've never responded to him, respond today. Today is the day of salvation. Don't put it off. And if, if you already have, if you're following Jesus, then every day is a day for submission, to follow him further, to be faithful, to obey. Because, man, we live in a city where people are dying without him. And, and some of that's physical death. Some people are like forever alienated. So they just aren't around anymore. But long before that, if eternal life is knowing the Father and the Son who he sent, we're experiencing a, a foretaste of eternal life now. 
And for those who don't know Jesus, they are experiencing the exact opposite. Isolation from God, isolation from one another, confusion on identity, confusion about mission. We must be faithful witnesses like our king. We must be obedient to his call to make disciples, to teach them everything that Jesus taught and to baptize them into this new community.